2: Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. And that chapter contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work, a tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet, and it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word "Forgiveness," you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the reality management worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon on Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply the use of these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. And when you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I can then turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we can have a conversation. Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at Yagain.org. That's w h y a-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if we get an email from you, we'll address your comment or question or testimonial on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so that you can listen back to the archive for your feedback or input. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody chooses to do that, either through a phone call or an email, because it makes it far easier for us to understand what is serving you best and thereby live into our intention with this work, which is to be of service. So please let us know what's working for you, how is this landing for you, how we can be of service, and we will endeavor to live into that intention. This is uh, the end of our 13th year of doing this internet show. We're launching into our 14th year now. And who knows how long it's going to go on. Only the shadow knows. For those of you of a certain age, the old radio show, The Shadow had a few comments we had a support group last night we had um, a bit more of an extended conversation about how is it that some people believe and certain spiritual teachings profess to say that all events are neutral and um, you know, my, my gratitude goes out to the people that choose to join us in those support groups and raise important questions like that so that they can get answered a little bit more deeply or from a slightly different perspective. Every one of us can benefit as as we teach in this work, as the teaching in this work shows us or invites us to learn for ourselves. Living in the question is highly preferable to living by belief or dogma and every little bit you can do to get increasingly comfortable living in the question will bring your life experience to a higher and more positive level. So I was talking about uh, yesterday with a podcast from the david gruder uh, podcast which is titled "The one thing and uh, they're teaching the same thing they're 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 observing the same thing there, which is it is highly preferable to live your life from questioning rather than belief or dogma, living in the observation, asking on a regular basis for your higher guidance to show you a different way to look at things whenever what your conscious logical mind is telling you or whatever you've been taught by your culture is telling you leads you with an angry, negative judgment, negative emotional state, etc., because... There's always another way. Guy Finley likes to talk about how there's always another story. There's always another angle from which you can look at something that will give you a perspective that is more loving, that is more flexible, that is more productive than whatever you're going to arrive at when you come from bitterness or hurt or resentment. And you can't get there by thinking your way to the answer. This is one of the things that Dr. Michael Rice has observed and puts in his work. He calls it the the pseudo-solutions of the non-being mind. He says, you know, essentially we've been given these spiritual faculties we have a higher spiritual mind that has these spiritual faculties of will and creativity and and the the, the teaching that is so beneficial is that our conscious logical mind, our egoic mind, has a cheap copy of each of those spiritual faculties. And the one that he talks about as the most common, the most counterproductive pseudo-solution from what he calls the non-being mind or the egoic mind, conscious logical mind, Is the idea that I'm going to figure this out I am going to use my logic to get rid of a problem that I created when I started using my logic it's it's such a powerful concept that it's actually in every reality management worksheet in the current version it says quotes David Bohm, who was a physicist that brilliant at the level of Einstein. And David Bohm talked about sustained incoherence and the problem that there's an inherent flaw with our pattern of conscious logical thought, and the problem that we perpetuate whenever we create an emotional and mental emotional problem and then we decide we're going to think our way to a solution of that problem and um just it's not going to work too well it's it's like uh you know you, you have a headache and somebody points out to you it's on the right side of your head and somebody points out to you hey you know that hammer you're using isn't very soft it's got this really um hard surface and you're banging it against your head, maybe that's what's causing the pain in your head. And maybe you're flexible enough to say, okay, maybe you're right. And then you think about it a minute. You say, maybe if I hit that side of my head with a a slightly different angle or a slightly different pressure, it'll take the pain away. Now, there are none of us that are, are sane at any level that would think that's a good idea. And yet, people like Krishnamurti, Paramahansa Yogananda, David Bohm, people like this have been pointing this out to us for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, that the conscious, logical mind was never intended to be our primary go-to for navigating in this world. It was intended to be a very useful tool, a simple tool. And we've been given a primary... We'll call it a tool, a primary way to access insight, intuition, wisdom, and it's a far more subtle and powerful mechanism than anything our conscious logical mind has at its disposal or can access, and that's why so many of these deep spiritual teachings talk about, you know, don't have an idol, don't look outside of yourself, just Understand your true nature, breathe and soften and ask to be taught by this guidance system that's in in you that's been given to you as this gift and you might you might prayer you might call it and, and prayer in the sense of the ancient Aramaic definition of setting a trap for God, tuning your antenna your internal antenna, so that you can receive insight, intuition, divine inspiration, whatever you want to call it, and you can't get that by thinking it through. The solution, and I, I talked to, to people about this in my office for decades now, I've talked to them about how when they come through the front door in my office, I tell them, my assumption is that you are not sick crazy, stupid, lazy, or masochistic, that you do not enjoy pain. Now, I'm willing to be proven wrong. I'm I'm going to try and live my life the way I suggest other people do, by observation. So I'll make some observations. And if it turns out, through these observations, that, yep, you really do have a deep sickness, a a serious problem, then I'm, I'm willing to look at that. However, I'm going to start with the basic observation, because while I've done this work for almost 50 years now, and I've seen a lot of people in a lot of different, very difficult situations, I've never met the person who actively wanted to make their life miserable. And so if they're not sick, crazy, stupid, lazy, or masochistic, and they keep doing things that create problems in their lives, they must have some reasons within them that they're not able to access directly that make it a viable option for them to keep doing the thing that produces the results they don't like. And so a big part of the work we do is to try and help people turn inside and understand more of the internal, you might call them unconscious dynamics that are alive and active within them so that they can choose differently, they can choose again. And so I tell them on a regular basis, here's the problem. You come in here, you're smart enough to go for help, you've either got insurance or you've made enough money to do this, you're an intelligent person. And if the solution to your problem existed at the conscious, logical level, you would have already discovered it you're plenty bright enough to look at conscious logical factors and see how they might be rearranged to provide a solution to this problem. The reason you haven't succeeded is because the answer doesn't exist at the conscious logical level. You are not going to think your way out of a prison of thoughts. It's just not going to happen. So the Way of Mastery, right in the first lesson where it introduces us to the first axiom of truth, it says, listen, if you want to grow into this pathway, just open up your mind and let in this first axiom. Just start considering it. This is the entrance to this pathway. You don't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars You don't have to give away all of your physical possessions and go follow some guru. The first step in awakening is to allow into your mind this first axiom of truth. And that axiom is nothing that you experience is caused by anything outside of you. You experience only the effects of your own choice. A little Later on in that same page it says, we understand your mind is going to start chattering and saying that's complete nonsense, that's not what I've been raised, I understand that this came from the outside and that's causing me pain and this and that and the other thing. And on that same page it says, please understand that this pathway, the way of the heart, is not the way of the intellect. And that, indeed, your intellect was never designed to be your primary way of interacting with life, with, uh, your, with other brothers and sisters in the physical realm or the spiritual realm. It was just designed as this simple navigating system in the physical realm. So you don't walk off a cliff so you don't step in front of a a big truck in, a, in, a, in an intersection, so you don't eat poison berries. It's just a very simple tool. And you have been given a precious gift, an access to insight, in, intuition, wisdom, divine inspiration, whatever you want to call it. And... set of simple tools like your physical hands and feet and your conscious logical mind but as Einstein calls us to pay attention to we live in a culture that's forgotten the precious gift we are not taught in our schools how to breathe comfortably how to bring on the parasympathetic response how to turn inside and watch thoughts without buying into them or generating negative emotions from them and tune into the more subtle energies and insights and intuitions and creativity we don't aren't even taught that in our schools anymore so he says our culture has forgotten this precious gift and perhaps even worse our culture has elevated that simple tool to the level of master and so we think we've been trained to think we have to put our nose to the grindstone and think our way through to an answer. And we have to believe what we're taught. And we have to follow rigid dogmatic belief systems. And it will never work. Just, just think about the concept of trying to think your way out of a prison that's made of your own thoughts. So how have you been introduced so far in just the first nine lessons? We started a little bit on Lesson 10, but how have you been introduced to a new way of living your life, of interacting with the world? And how are you doing at quieting the parts of your mind that want to fight against that and not even let you try it? How are you doing At learning to live in the question as Rilke would call us to doing an active practice of consciously asking to be shown and then how are you doing with quieting the mind that once it asks a question wants to demand an answer this is the second part of Rilke's wisdom. He says, you know, the problem is you can ask a really good question, but, and, and there's a tremendous potential available for you once you've asked some really good questions, but you'll never get to live into that potential if you demand an answer. Because in the moment that a mind can ask a really good question, that same mind is not capable of comprehending the answer. The mind that asks a really good question needs to grow and expand, soften and breathe and open to new possibilities before it can even comprehend the answer. And if a mind is not willing to soften and breathe and grow and let go of everything it thinks it knows... It cannot allow, it can't make space for new knowledge. This is one of the things we talk about. that came to me years ago to say, in order for me to learn anything new, I need to have these two factors, two observations, active in my mind. The first observation is very simple just a direct observation I can easily understand and observe moment to moment that I do not know everything there are things about the size of the universe there are things about cooking cleaning knitting astrophysics quantum physics there are things about plumbing and electro- electrical work in houses that I don't know I've spent a lot of years in my life studying things related to philosophy and psychology, so I know something about that stuff, but I certainly don't know all of it. on a regular basis, somebody asks me, hey, have you read this book? Have you heard about this theory? Have you learned about this school of therapy? And the answer on a regular basis is no, even though... Most of my time in my professional career for the past 50 years has been spent exploring things and often new things. I'm not even close to knowing even what everything there is to know in my own field. So there's a direct observation that's very easy for me to make. I don't know everything there is to know. And then the second observation I need to keep active in my mind in order for for me to have the potential to learn something new is that since I don't know everything, it's very easy for me to observe that whatever I think I know is only partially true and perhaps even completely false. So if I go into any new situation, which is any moment of life, with those two observations active, now I have the potential to learn something new. But if I go into a situation thinking I know what I know and I know how I know it and where I learned it and why it's right and why everything else is wrong, there is no possibility for me to learn something new as long as I'm holding on to the thought that I already know what I need to know. And I don't know the actual truth of it, but I think this is probably behind the idea that comes across in the way of mastery where they say on a regular basis your ability to choose will never be taken from you even the creator even yeshua isn't going to come and bust down your door and make you listen to wisdom or choose for love god light love all that is the one thing the way david gruder calls it Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, is always there and will always welcome you when you welcome it, but it won't bust down the door. You don't have to accept the fact that your pain is caused by your error in thought. It's something that we're encouraged to take a look at in each and every worksheet. It says, If I'm in pain, my thoughts are in error. But we don't have to accept that. We don't even have to explore it as a possibility. We can just say what our culture teaches us. You made me angry. You hurt my feelings. I'm only upset because this is bad or wrong. And we can stay in that level of rigidity, some would call it denial, as long as we want. We can do it for an entire lifetime. Many of us have. And fortunately for us in this kind of work, whenever we get tired of it, whenever we're, our, Michael Rice would say, um, the pain has made our ears grow enough that we're willing to pay attention, there's some good options, some good ways to help put aside everything we think we want, everything we think we know. This is right in the beginning before you even get into the lessons in this work, in the promise Put away everything you think you know. Put away everything you think you need. And find a way to understand that the flow of life is perfect just the way it is, even though your conscious, logical mind will not be able to comprehend that at first. How could it be good that a tornado comes and wipes out half of my town? How could it be good that a five-year-old gets arthritis so badly that she's relegated to a wheelchair. How could it be good that there's this war going on in Ukraine and the Gaza Strip? And My conscious logical mind cannot comprehend how that's all going to work out one way or another. So the trap is set. I can decide to use my conscious logical mind to try and figure all of that stuff out and decide who's right and who's wrong. Or I could choose to use toning, chanting, prayer, whatever you want to call it, to set myself up to be able to hear or to intuit, to receive loving messages Prayer, from the ancient Aramaic, one of the valid definitions for the word that was in the ancient Aramaic that we interpret as prayer, is to attune to the energy of creativity, wisdom, the one mind, God, light, love, whatever you want to call it. And we could choose to do that. On a regular basis even if we haven't been taught that in our schools we can choose as adults to spend time in meditation or prayer or asking to be shown which would be like prayer just just that simple phrase I'm asking to be shown what's mine to do here could be considered prayer especially if right after I ask it I avoid the trap of the conscious logical mind that wants to demand an answer this is one of the things that so many people stumble on with this work because they say, well, i ask asking, and I don't get anything. Yes, at my conscious, logical mind level, I'm not going to get, okay, Tim, walk 30 more paces straight ahead, then walk five steps to the right, and then angle off at 45 degrees for seven paces, and there's going to be the answer to life. It's not. It doesn't work that way. And yet... Most people that I know who've worked at this have come back to say, you know what, when I just learn to soften and breathe and ask to be shown and then trust that whatever unfolds is going to be just fine, even if it might take me days, weeks, months, or years to see how that thing that happened that I didn't really like or was quite physically painful or ended up costing me $30,000 or whatever, in wasted funds, eventually I see how that event and that interaction led to some of the best things in my life later on in my life. Directly or indirectly, the connections are there to be seen with that 2020 hindsight. So, and this is one of the things that was happening in our support group last night. Somebody said, I, I, I would like to do a worksheet, and we said, okay. We watched a uh, listened to a David Gruder podcast about evil being outside of us and learning to question, ask to be shown and and have insider intuition guide us. and then this person did a worksheet, and the worksheet is on a tremendous amount of mental, emotional, psychological pain active in this person's energy system right now. And the person's mind was telling them it's because this is what's happening in the world today in politics. This is what's happening in the world today in social justice issues. This is what's happening in individual rights. This is what's happening in a war zone across the country, across the world from where I live. And the fact of the matter is, as long as I hold on to that belief that I'm upset, I'm in pain, I've got this anger or this depression or this sense of hopelessness or despair because of something outside of me, then that anger, depression, or despair is going to continue. Unless or until, magically, that external event changes. so do i want to believe do i want to experiment with the possibility that there's another way for me to deal with the pain and emotions and thoughts that i experience or do i want to stay stuck doing the same thing over and over and over again and getting the same unpleasant results So one of the people said, okay, you talk about how all events are neutral, but I don't see how this, this, and this could be neutral. And one of the ways it was coming across last night was when we were discussing it and saying, look, all of these events that you are talking to me about being so upset about, they're really happening outside of you. I want you to understand. I'm not telling you to doubt your perception. I want you to trust your own perception. And I want you to go a little deeper and understand that not only are those bad things happening, but there's other bad things happening that you're not even mentioning. There's other countries where people don't have enough food. There's other places where tyrants are stealing all the money and having people live in poverty and violence is being done to women and children and men and blah, blah, blah. And you're not generating upset about those things. You're focused on something happening somewhere in your country or somewhere against your political beliefs or somewhere against your religious beliefs. And just notice that you're generating all of that upset, but you're not generating upset about the people in the Ukraine or the people in China without food or the people who are experiencing flooding somewhere on the other side of of this continent, and just understand what this teaching is directing me to is what I choose to focus my conscious awareness upon is what creates my experience of life. And now take a breath and expand and understand that in the same moment where people are attacking other people in the Ukraine and in the... And the shipping lanes, people are using drones to blow up American soldiers, and people are calling your favorite politician nasty names. And while all of that's happening, people rushing into burning buildings to save strangers. There are people who see a car accident and run toward the burning car to help people in the car. There are people who are creating nonprofits and and donating the vast majority of their time, intelligence, money, and energy to correct some of these same social problems that you see other people actively creating. And you don't focus on all of the people who are choosing for love. You don't focus on all of the people who are donating their time, intelligence, money, and energy to make their world and the world around them a better place to live. And when you don't focus on those things, you don't get the benefit of resonating that positive energy within you. So we went into this in some detail. Not trying to talk anybody into anything, but to give people the option to start observing I remember when the Sandy Hook shootings happened, I was in a a meeting of about 50 or 60, I forget how many people were there, it was a public speaking forum and I was the executive director of that group. And we were in this luncheon when the news came across and of course everybody had smartphones and people were hearing about it. And, and then there was an uproar in the room. Now these are all clean Dry, intelligent, high-functioning adult human beings, and they were having a wonderful luncheon at a nice restaurant. It's climate-controlled, and they're safe. You know, in the, in the suburbs of Chicago, and the mood was good, and people were glad they were there, and they were meeting new people to network with. One minute, everybody's feeling great; the next minute, that you could have cut a. The the tension in that room, you couldn't cut through it with a knife. It was so thick. And I stood up and I said, please, take a breath or two, hold it at the top, slow the exhale down, pay attention to what's going on. I'm not telling you to put your head in the sand. This thing happened. A person went into a school with a gun and shot it up and killed some children and killed some teachers and at that same moment there are already people i guarantee you there are therapists who are donating their time to go there and help the traumatized people there are people sending money from outside this country even there are people who are redoubling their efforts to change the gun laws there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of people responding it with efforts to try and correct the negative impact of this one wounded person who went into this school with a gun please pay attention to what you choose to focus your mind energy on that's what's going to create your experience of life that's how this book the way of mastery can talk about all events are neutral There's, there's no prescription in here that tells you what you should value and what you shouldn't value. I hope you're hearing this. I hope you're hearing the words where it says, so pay attention. What is it that you value? Just question it. Do you value waking up? If you're not experiencing unconditional love and enlightenment, then just understand that means because you're valuing something else. I hope you remember that part of, it was either lesson eight or nine, where it says... Just ask yourself, when people talk about enlightenment, when people talk about unconditional love, it's here in Lesson 9. Nothing can be said to exist for you until you have tasted it with your lived experience. So when you hear talk about enlightenment, when you hear talk about union with your Creator, when you hear talk about unconditional love, The invitation here is to stop nodding your head as though you know what those things are and turn your attention within yourself and ask, do I live fully in the experience of these things? And whenever the answer is no, then understand right now you are valuing something other than those things. And it doesn't. This book doesn't then tell you. Here's what you should value. Here's what's right. Here's what's, this book says. What is it? Question it for yourself. Search it out. Find it for yourself, and you decide whether you still want it. Gosh, I hope you understand how powerful a difference that is when this book. These teachings just keep suggesting you question this for yourself. You get to decide what you value. If you want to value one political belief system over another, this book is completely fine with it. It's not going to tell you who should be the next president. It's not going to tell you who should have rights and who shouldn't have rights. It's not going to tell you what you should do with your money. It's simply going to ask you to be aware of the fact that when you experience something, it's because that's where you're focusing your mind energy. This is one of the few teachings, and all of the teachings that I share with others follow the same path, where it doesn't tell you what to think. It helps you understand what you're already doing with your thought, That's creating your experience. You get to decide whether you still want to value the thoughts you've been valuing. You get to experience fully what's been the impact on my life. How do I feel when I when I call somebody stupid or ignorant or where's that tightness in my body? Is that a pleasant feeling? Do I want more of it? Do I want less of it? This book is just trying to help us understand how to question and observe what we're already doing. This book says you are an infinite creator. And yet, this book also understands that most people that come into contact with this kind of teaching have not been taught. They haven't been shown. They haven't had active demonstrations in their life about how they are an active creator. So the invitation is, understand how what you choose as a label or a value for an outside event is what gives it its value. You know, not too long ago, there was a terrorist attack in the Gaza Strip. Some people looked at these people that were dead and said, oh, that's a tragedy. Other people said, this is great. Now they're going to pay attention to us. Now maybe we can get some freedom for ourselves. Same outside event different human minds looking at it, different human minds choosing different thought patterns, different experience within the body-mind-energy system of those human beings. That's all we're calling ourselves to in this work, learning to observe what's the actual lived truth, what's the actual dynamic about what causes my experience of life. And this... Krishnamurti and very few other teachings that I've come across asks us to understand and observe for ourselves that at every level where we judge we are creating a problem. It's... Now you might not think it's a problem but you can think of, you know, being in a canoe on a river and going with the flow and learning how to steer the canoe from the back and understanding uh, the eddy pools and the turbulence and the danger of having it turn sideways but working with that flow of life, that flow of the river is far easier and produces far more enjoyable experiences or field trips than trying to go upriver or trying to steer it from the front or trying to you know, ignore the rocks and the trees that might be just under the surface that can capsize the, the canoe. This teaching is just asking us, Will you reconsider everything you've been taught that leaves you feeling anger and fear and hurt and sadness and guilt and shame and blame and resentment and vengeance? Will you please, for your own sake, start to question anew everything you've been taught that leaves you feeling less than loving? And just like the Course in Miracles it asks us over and over again to choose to teach only love, to choose for love, to understand we're going to have other than loving thoughts, and yet we don't have to share them. We don't have to pour excessive mind energy into them. We don't have to focus on them to the exclusion of all of the wonderful, life-expanding, creative energies, loving energies that are going on that very same moment. So, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. We've got about 10 minutes left. For clarification, for comments, for refutation, and um, call that number, press one, we can have a conversation. Does this make sense? Is it getting through an old pattern in your thought? Is it helping you understand what on first glance might seem ridiculous, a comment like, all events are neutral? Or, as we were starting to read in Lesson 10 yesterday, the way is easy and without effort. Wednesday today so we will not be having a support group we will do it again tomorrow and um, it's it is a wonderful way to get emotional energetic support for doing the worksheet process and sometimes the intellectual support because sometimes people have a, a difficult time understanding the dynamics the intellectual dynamics of that worksheet But it's also a great place to get clarification on questions like how can you say all events are neutral and what is the meaning of living your life in the question without demanding an answer. Tomorrow I will probably, being as it's a Thursday, I'll probably go on in lesson 10. And most of the time when I read through this work, if I'm reading it alone, I will read through lesson 11. However, I don't believe I've done that much as I read it in support groups or on the internet show, because Lesson 11 is literally just a meditation. It's uh, If you purchase this book, it comes with a, a CD that has the original audio of this download, and so you can just play it and go into a meditative space. A meditation into the heart of Christ or the mind of Christ. Area code 541, you're in the air.
3: Hello, Dr. Tim. Good morning. Celinda here.
2: Hello. How are you?
3: Hello. I'm good. Thank you. And you? I'm and doing well. I, great. I just wanted to tell you, please continue what you're doing, because I have observed for myself that I learn best by repetition. It's just like a water drops on a stone is softening the stone and so I just really appreciate that everything you said today is very relevant not only from the way of mastery just to recap it but also um, in relation to my practical affairs because it is a slow process between asking the question and uh, being shown the answer and being able to build those brain cells in order to activate it daily has a uh, a perception, not even a perception an understanding that um, becomes a habit and I really appreciate this thank you has very practical benefits as I'm groping to learn it. Um, and living the experience of practicing it. Thank you.
2: Oh, well, you're welcome. I, that's the intent. The idea, especially within my own life, was that um, when I was called to start doing a daily practice, and often a moment-to-moment practice, that's when I started to get life experiences that made a lot of these teachings come alive for me, and I'm glad it's of value to you. I'm glad that you're willing to listen along, and we'll keep on as long as we can. Um, the The stuck point for a lot of people is the fear. And that's why lesson seven for me was so pivotal when it tells that story about that little blade of grass up in that mountain valley. And every time I pull back from healing or speaking my truth or choosing for love, this teaching says it's because in that moment, just prior to that, I I chose to believe that something that has absolutely no power over me whatsoever would come and crush me if I chose for love, if I chose to speak my truth. If I use the power of mind energy and therefore the power of creation to generate fear, that's the only thing that creates that illusion of separation which you know in its initiation that dream of separation that's what brings out fear that brings fear into my experience because without that dream of separation it's what you know they would call in the scriptures perfect love and they say perfect love casts out fear what does that mean? it means you just stay in direct conscious awareness of the creative energy and you don't use it for anything other than the validation of and the strengthening of the experience of that creative energy because the bottom line is that's all that really exists is the creative flow and the creative energy itself now you can use it to create a dream of separation It's just like you can use, uh, in the Star Wars analogy, you you can use the Force for good or evil. You can use it to become a Jedi, or you can use it to become a Sith. But it's just energy. Just like you can use the energy that creates a temperature increase to create beautiful jewelry, and to melt metal and build a statue and build a building, or you can use it to burn down. A forest or a village so it's just energy and we're called into questioning and observing how we're choosing to use our energy and this works specifically most often is the mind energy so thank you for that call and that verification or validation I will mute you so you can listen to the second hour I We have great appreciation for everyone who's choosing to join us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow and Friday and go a little bit further into Lesson 10 and push the limits of our understanding about how the way could be easy and without effort. Clearly, there are some different definitions for the words in that phrase than most of us have been raised on. And we'll explore some of that again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love. And everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice.
1: Thank you, Dr. Tim. Appreciate it.
2: You're welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show.
1: Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Wednesday. January 31st, last day of January, 2024, and their call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. We'll give Michael just a moment to dial in, and uh, we've had several people, you know, I'm <laughs> It's not the best way of doing this, but I have my phone on speaker right in front of a microphone that is set up to do a live broadcast on uh, Podbean. And uh, so it's, it, you know, I have to be real quiet because so, it picks it up. But it's kind of like a metallic sound. I've, I've listened to the Podbean recordings, and uh, it just kind of sounds metallic-y. So, you know, it's... Uh, it would be better if we could somehow connect them to each other, you know, uh, live wire between them, so that it didn't do that. But anyway, we've had several people though on Podbean from uh, Poland and UK that have uh, tapped in that way because it doesn't cost them cell minutes, or they just have to be hooked up to the internet and they can access it and talk to us or whatever. So it is working for them, and, and I asked them if it was doing okay, and they said yes. So I'm glad that that is an option for us to do that. And uh, we are doing the study on uh, Aramaicisms. On I'm trying to do two things at one time here. I'm not multitasking very well. Um, so anyway, um, uh, leave page here. Pardon me. Um, if you go to whygen.org, and you can click on Kaboris and scroll down to Enlightenment Study. And even though some of the days we have, you know, gone off answered questions and not really hit a whole lot about the manuscript, I've still listed them in the uh, special uh, shows on the Enlightenment Study. So today is number 13. And, uh We are glad that you're with us. The listening audience has grown, and participation even in questions and things has has increased. So we do appreciate you. And asking your questions, even if it doesn't have to do with the Kvorus or the Enlightenment, you know, if we can support you in your work, that's what we're here for, too. So we'll give Michael a moment to get onto the switchboard, and then I'm going to switch over and start the Podbean. And... uh, if uh, you don't know what I'm talking about when I say Podbeam, you can actually, if you go to um, the website, it will tell you that we have started doing podcasting on that uh, Podbean. It's an app you can download on your phone. You can, If you click that you're following our uh, radio broadcast, then it will actually send you a note and let you know when we go live. And so anybody that's already downloaded it, you know, they'll get that notice, so it's kind of a reminder, and then they just click on the app and open it up, and they have the chat room. They have the option to click that they want to talk, so it's really a pretty cool little app. And it also picks up all of our broadcasts from Blog Talk Radio as well. So we're glad you're with us. I see Michael has joined us, so I'm going to say, welcome, Michael.
4: Thank you, dear Hart. Uh, Does Podbeam give access to all 5,000 shows that we've done over the years, or is it limited?
1: The access is there. However, it uh, only displays like 300 or 500 or something like that. I think I can increase it that it would display 1,000, but they said that the more you display on a page, the less that – it seems to attract attention or whatever, but they can go back and pick up any of the uh, archives. It just All the doesn't way to show the beginning. it on, Great. on right. It, it just doesn't show it on the display. You have to actually search for it.
4: Awesome. So is it like just so I understand it? You have to do a search for, or or you just scroll through back through older.
1: No it will not display but to a thousand so anything beyond that you would have to i guess type in the search for it i'm not i'm not absolutely sure
0: mm.
1: cool okay
4: well thank you everybody for joining us delighted that you're here and we're going to move forward with the uh, i hesitate to say study because study is of the mind and what we're looking to do is to get the mind out of the way. You know, the the secrets are not hidden in the mind, they're hidden by the mind. And so, forgiveness has to do with collapsing the output of the mind. It doesn't have to do with letting other people off the hook. And that's the major tool that Yeshua offers. And sadly, in Greek translations, it gets turned 180 degrees out of phase. Which so much of what Yeshua taught has been turned on its head when it comes through Greek translations. And and actually I'd say more than just translations, but through Greek philosophy that the the words represent something so much different than what Yeshua taught. And what we're looking to do is to provide the tools that empower the mind to move forward. So we're up to uh, page six, if you've got the manuscript. I, I put a page in there, the last uh, publication that we did, that just gives some some information about other manuscripts that are out there. So if you want to get into a deeper study, there's several different uh, uh, resources there that you can jump on and, and make use of. And then the manuscript on page 7 goes into the Yonan family. Uh, The Yonan family owned the Yonan Codex. That's how Dan actually started working in the prison system. But it was, and there's some conversation about it, whether it was a 4th century text or a 7th century text. And so Norman Malik Yonan, he was Assyrian, so he spoke Aramaic as his native tongue and was a member of the family who were ancient priests. The, the family system was tapped into that lineage of priests. And he was a lecturer at um, John Hopkins University. And he writes about his father. He says, my father went to Iran in 1878, and what I state here is from my own experience. First, a word is necessary about the community of which the Onan Malik family were leaders. The Assyrians occupied the plains lying between Lake Irma, now renamed Razaway, and the Kurdish Mountains, which are about 90 miles long from the 25 5 to 25 miles in width. In early Christian history, the Eastern in, or Nestorian Church was established in this area. Cut off from contacts with the Western world, it retained a very ancient rite. Its language was Syriac, closely related to the Aramaic time of Yeshua. The church was Protestant and independent. Missionaries of the Western churches first appeared in Irma, the Irma region around 1830, hoping to bring about a renewal of vigor in the old Nestorian church. The new spirit that emerged from missionary activity was resented by some of the static elements of the Nestorian Church. And, of course, that's always true, that the old doesn't want to give way to the new. And for me, that brings forward a principle in the mind. Why doesn't the old want to give way to the new? Because the mind, and and I'll say want, but the mind doesn't have a want, the mind has been structured to stick with what it thinks it knows. And so not only do these static elements happen in things like churches, but they happen in our own lives, in our own minds. And so this new energy brought forward what they called an evangelical Protestant church. Long before the missionaries arrived, the Malik Yonan family had earned a position of leadership in the Assyrian Nestorian community with the appearance of more, Vigorous Western Christians, it was natural that from this family would come some of the outstanding leadership in the new church. Missionaries founded a college and a printing press. Three of the Malik Yonin family, in my father's time, became the most prominent members of the community. I was a boy. I met Dr. Isaac Malik Yonan, who became a professor of the theological seminary, an able preacher and challenging leader. His brother, Dr. Jesse M. Yonan, was a well-known physician. Third brother, Reuben, I never met, but he shared an equal reputation with his brother. So this is some of the family history. Clergy in the Yonan family for many generations before that. Somewhere in the remote past, the Yonan family acquired a cherished, very old copy, the Yonan Codex, not the Kibbutz, of the Bible. And If you're doing research, you may run across, there's actually a a case, and I don't know whether it's online anymore or not, where uh, Rocco Errico, who I praise very highly, uh, actually was very critical of the Kabor's manuscript, uh, saying it wasn't genuine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what had happened, and I was involved in this personally with Rocco, what happened was that Rocco knew that the group in Albany, Georgia, and in Atlanta, Dan's group, had the Yonan Codex, and knew it was dated somewhere between the 4th and 7th centuries. But he didn't know that Dan had funded an expedition, had gone to the Middle East and found the Kaboris. So when presented with some of the Kaboris information, he thought he was looking at the Yonan Codex, and so became critical of it and its it's veracity. I personally, when I was traveling with the Kaboras, stopped in Atlanta. Rocco and I had known each other for years. We'd worked together for years. And I was carrying the manuscript, and I brought it to him to inspect personally. And it was like, oh, well, this is very much like the codex that we were working with, a more ancient manuscript. And he realized that he'd been thinking that, the Kimuras was the Yonan when he'd run across information about it. So we corrected that one. And Rocco shared with me that uh, when George Lamsa passed away, they had uh, the manuscript that they worked with. And I don't much know much about that manuscript. It's not something I've really looked into deeply. But but uh, he said, you know, I would I would go out every week. We kept the manuscript in a vault in a bank. And he said, I would go to the bank, and once a week we'd have a service, and I'd go and get the manuscript and bring it. And when uh, George Lomster passed away, he went to get the manuscript, and it was gone, it was disappeared, and he did not know where it went. Uh, The Kiburis manuscript, similarly, and I I think I've got some information here about it, I'm not even sure now. But similarly, when Dan passed away, the family actually the manuscript was given to the Syrian Orthodox Church and there was a priest in the Syrian Orthodox Church who worked in a university in New York and in in return for I had actually spent some time working the manuscript needed repair it needed maintenance which is a costly proposition i actually took the manuscript to people on both the East Coast and the West Coast, and we were looking at $500 an hour to do some some, some, uh, maintenance on the manuscript, and we just didn't have the funding for it. And so we made a deal with New York University, and they were given permission to, uh, to display the manuscript in return for doing some of the maintenance work that was done on it. They actually spent quite a bit of money, and... One of the reasons why Dan had given the manuscript to the Syrian Orthodox Church was to protect it from his family. In the early days, when Dan started to do this work, he was a fairly wealthy real estate investor, real estate attorney. His family did well. They were from a legal family, his father, and I don't even know how many generations, but you know they were doing very well and he turned his attention to resolving crime and the the issue of blockage of truth in America. He became alarmed at what was happening in government circles and such uh, he, as a lawyer, and he turned his attention there, and in doing that, he began investing in that work, which meant his family fortune kind of disappeared. Uh, his wife at one point, Well, they divorced, but his wife at one point tried to have him put in a mental institution saying he was crazy because he wasn't out doing real estate deals and making fortunes for the family. He was engaged in going into jails and bringing healing to prisoners in jail. And so his family was quite, um, what should I say, parts of his family were quite hostile to what he was doing. And after he passed away, the manuscript was in New York University, the family actually hired Sotheby's uh, auction house out of London, England, and the man who had shepherded the manuscript at New York University after it was delivered to him actually in tears told me about how Sotheby's came in with a plastic Walmart-style bag and said that they had permission from the family to take the manuscript and just took it, literally stole it Uh, without any... They they said that they had permission, but there was no permission whatsoever from uh, those who'd been given care of it, either the university or the bishop, archbishop, pardon me, of the Syrian Orthodox Church or myself who had custody of it before it went to New York University. So Sotheby's came in and just walked away with it. And it was turned over to me to deal with, and I went back and forth with Sotheby's. Just, it was crazy time and the communication. And finally, Sotheby's seeing that this was going to be a lot of legal wrangling that that they were in, and the potential for being in hot water around it they just dropped the sale of the manuscript they had advertised it they had picked it up and they were getting ready to sell it and they dropped that whole thing and the um, they then sadly turned it over to the family members who uh, what should i say we had uh, several rather intense exchanges around what they were doing with the manuscript And basically, the reason why Dan had given, at least the reason he shared with me, why he'd given it to the Syrian Orthodox Church was to protect it, knowing that his family would just be out to sell it and want the money. So that's what they tried to do, and Sotheby's ended up, because it was the family members or member that had uh, connected with Sotheby's and set that theft up. And I call it a theft because at least my take is that's exactly what it was and uh, the family members gave them back the manuscript rather than taking it back to New York University where it rightfully belonged they gave it to the family and the family just disappeared it and uh, for a couple of years we had no idea where it was we have tracked the sale that they did um, and if it ever comes back to the point where we have the funding, we do have high-res images of it, so the translation work can go on if the funding ever shows up to bring the, the uh, translation work to the next level. You know, the the original translation work done back in the 70s, there were 25 of the world's top aramisists who were working on the manuscript, and the project ran out of money, and we've been working with the, work, the translation work that was done back in the 70s to this date. And, of course, with the forgiveness work being the key element that had been twisted around by the Greeks, to me, it's like, that's really all we need. If, if we could restore actual first century Aramaic forgiveness to every mind, heart, and being on the planet, all all of the ills of the world would be resolved, all of the ills regarding humans, divorce, conflict, starvation. There would be, you know, one of the key phrases in the ancient Aramaic Beatitudes has to do with just and fair behavior. And if you look at the Beatitude that historically is interpreted as, historically and tragically misinterpreted as by the Greeks, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. That's the Greek rendition. Here's the Aramaic idea. The exact same phrase, blessed are you who and and this just enforces to me the understanding of how deficient in comprehension the Greek comprehension the Greek language is. And you know, if you don't have the brain cells for the language that you're reading, you can't you can't read what's there. And so, again, if we took this single phrase, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. If we were to fill that in accurately from the Aramaic, that would read, God implanted in your mind neural structures which will guide you when they are active. If they are inactive, you who follow these instructions will come into conscious possession of and be able to use this late guidance system designed to make available thoughts and actions that will increase your happiness and well-being. You who hunger for the mind structure underlying the attitude, judgment, and behavior described as just and fair behavior, behavior between people, you shall attain it. So it's got nothing to do be with, with being fulfilled again. The Greek translation of that whole passage Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. What the Aramaic speaks about is, there is a neural structure in you, an entity of mind, and yes, they understood 2,000 years ago what that meant. An entity of mind would be the more accurate rendition of the Aramaic words. Today, we would say a neural structure, that if it's active, it will guide you to happiness and well-being. And one of the instructions for how to achieve that is that you develop literally a neural structure. You you build the brain cells that will give your mind an attitude that will empower your judgment and behavior to be just and fair between people. And Dan, understanding that just and fair was not what his child was about, took the manuscript, um, attempted to preserve it, but unfortunately it disappeared. And I I hold that if a point comes where we ever come up with the funding to continue the translation, again, we've got high-resolution images, so we don't need the physical manuscript, but I think the people who now hold title to the manuscript, or at least I hold they will be, if we ever get to approaching them to take this translation work to the next level, that they'll be as interested in accurately uh, rendering the words of that manuscript in English today, but this this particular passage or this particular uh, element of the Beatitudes, you know, there's a there's a story about the Zen master who's standing in the middle of the river, and a Chila student comes out and says, "Master, Master, what do I need in order to, you know, achieve what you're wanting to teach us?" And the master grabs this guy by the scruff of the neck and stuffs him under the water and holds him there and holds him there and holds him there until he's spasming right on the on the verge of drowning. And he pulls him out of the water. And he says, you're going to have to want the next breath. You're going to have to want what I'm offering you as much as you wanted your next breath. In order to get this neural structure that will guide you, the benefit, the practical benefit in your life is it will guide you to happiness and well-being. This beatitude says, you've got a hunger for this neural structure. You've got a hunger for, you know, most of us have been brainwashed into, you know, whatever you have to do to make a buck, you do it. Craziness. It is a process to develop a mind that truly hungers for just and fair behavior in their actions and in the actions in the world. But that's basically what this particular beatitude is saying. So somewhere in the remote past, the Yonin family acquired this manuscript that was the Yonin Codex, and it was part of the family heritage. In 1918, due to the misfortunes of war, the Assyrian community was uprooted and driven from its ancient home. Only a small percentage of the community ever returned to Reziah. Their surviving members of the Malik Yonan family stayed for a while in Iraq, and then many members came to the United States. The manuscript of their family Bible finally found its way into Norman Yonan. And so that's what Dan started out working with, was that manuscript. But what they realized was it, was, it wasn't original, and it wasn't complete. There were pieces missing. And that's what sent Dan on the search for an earlier complete manuscript. So again, we're still on page 8 of the Enlightenment book. By the way, if you're listening to this for the first time and you're not aware of what we're doing, we're working with are working through a text that we publish called Enlightenment. Uh, it is what we've published so far from the Kiborx Codex. It's a part of our laws of living intensive. The, the laws of living intensive that we do is what Dan and I cooperatively put together out of our our parallel working, myself working with what at the before I met Dan I called lessons in living and then Dan working with what he called EMI emotional maturity instruction so we traveled parallel paths and and came put our work together and ended up calling the resultant uh, work laws of living so the uh foundation of laws of living is this manuscript the corpus and this text that we're working with, the Enlightenment text, is uh, a part of that course, and it's something we publish independently of that. It's a text that if you go to our website, whyagain.org, you can order from the website. It's $25 plus shipping, and the shipping program, I think, adds something like $8 to the the shipping of the manuscript. However, if you would like a copy of it, uh, we can't have you order it from the the uh, catalog because it automatically adds shipping and we can't control that it'll charge shipping however, if you go to our website why again w h y a g a i n dot org down at the bottom of the page you'll see a button that says donate if you go to the donate button and you donate twenty six dollars we'll pay the shipping it's the manuscripts twenty five um the payment goes through PayPal, and they take a percentage of it, so that extra dollar almost covers what, what PayPal takes, and then we'll pay the shipping of the manuscript to you. If you choose to do that, please put your name in that you're looking for, the Enlightenment book, and your address, so we'll know where to send it. And you know, within a day, we'll make sure that we ship that out to you so you've got it in hand. So at the bottom, toward the bottom of page eight, well, let me let me just ask, seeing as how we're th- about the halfway point, uh, checking in, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room or any thoughts you have to add at this point?
1: Uh, we do have a hand up, but I'm not sure if she's um, still got her hand up from where she talked to Dr. Tim or not. So it's Celinda, 541, well, you're on the air.
4: Welcome, young lady. How are you? I'm Hello, by- Miss Celinda, are you- Awesome.
3: Because I'm scared. I had to get over <laughs> to the phone. <laughs> How are you? Welcome. to you hear your
4: voice. What's exciting in your world?
3: Oh, um, it's all pretty exciting. All I have to decide is, all I have to notice, not decide, is whether my excitement is uh, based in love and joy and peace or is it based in fear and resistance and um, uh, whatever, whatever else goes along with all those. Powerful insight. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, You were talking the other day about understanding and um, I had some sharings uh, to share with you about how I have come to um, uh, understand it in relation to I've always I have come to the awareness that, for me, understanding is a heart issue. And I connect it to the amen and the ground upon which we stand. And so my understanding is much deeper than how most people use the word, and I say deeper in relation to being a heart issue, um, which I would use comprehension for.
4: Okay, so yeah, it doesn't care. happen in the mind. My point Would uh, the other day was, it doesn't happen in the mind. It comes from being. That's the only place understanding exists. The mind can uh, a computer can't understand anything, neither can the mind. It can spit yeah, out what it's and thought, got, and that. it can look like understanding, but it's not possible. It only comes in the experience of being.
3: Yep, yep. And it's a connection of the Christ mind for me in connection with the mother creator, which is the heart and Ruha. And that, um, and uh, the the Kuba and the Rahma are what, how I relate to the intelligence of creator. And then the understanding is a hard issue. Wisdom is a hard issue. All of those things for me. And it is an artificial distinction, but they're metaphors that help me unite the whole thing. And then the holy child, which is my, me in form as I go out and um, express my purpose in life in this physical dimension. So I just wanted to share that with you, and I uh, appreciated the expansion you did on it and the the metaphor of the computer. That was really helpful.
4: Sweet. Awesome. Anything else on your mind for today?
3: No, I'm really enjoying this... uh, this series of sharings that you're doing on the Enlightenment book, how it came about and what your intention was and what its meaning is for you. So thank you. Keep on.
4: All right, we'll do it. Delighted. Miss Jeannie, anybody else on the phone, queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room or anything happening in Podbeam? Welcome to everybody who's listening through Podbeam. We are working toward finding a way that we can sew the two together so we can broadcast uh, and have a back-and-forth communication between both programs. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but uh, G is keeping an eye on Podbeam. So if you have a question, you can ask that question. It won't be recorded through the radio show because we are recording to um, the radio show program, too. So we... we, we your voice won't come through. But Jeannie will communicate that so that we can bring it through on Blog Talk. So Machine, do we have anything else happening there?
1: It is all quiet on this end. Cool. All right. Well
4: let's go forward and look at uh, some other opinions on the uh the translation work. So Bruce Metzger Metzger, pardon me. Who's a uh, New Testament Greek scholar was with Princeton Theological Seminary, and was a member of the Biblical uh, Society of Biblical Literature, had looked at the codex the, the Yonan and suggested that the Peshitta Syriac version of the New Testament supplanted the earlier Syriac Aramaic version and in much the same way that Jerome's Latin Vulgate gained over the Old Latin translations. Masker had come to the conclusion that the Peshitta was translated from the Greek versions of the New Testament. He does surrender to the assumption that the Peshitta, and that would be the Yonan Codex at that point, not Kaboris, as represented by the Yonan Codex Foundation is dated about the 7th century, a relatively early copy of the Peshitta. So there's a verification of what Yonan had. And as I say, that's what Dan started to work with in the early days was the Yonan, but wanted to find something that was older and was more complete. One of the uh, translators involved in the manuscript project was Dr. John Shapley, and he was a professor at the Catholic University of America. And as he looked at the uh, Codex uh, and the Kiburus, his, his summary, his statement about the manuscripts was, it should be remembered that the Syriac or Aramaic canon of the New Testament must have been already established before the Christological disputes of the 5th century divided off this first so-called Nestorians and then the Monophysites, For both these churches, despite their other disagreements, which eventually led to divergences, they had the same New Testament. Since, as this shows, the Syriac Aramaic New Testament clearly antedated the 5th century disputes, a whole New Testament, like the one presented by the Yonan Codex Foundation, could be written at an early date. Because this codex is apparently our first such whole New Testament, it becomes invaluable as a primary source of text criticism. So, Shapley was one of the uh, one of the, trans- the twenty five translators who worked on the manuscript originally, and uh, I'm not sure, Ginny, if one of the pre recorded shows that we played shared this story, but I'll share it again. There's a to me it was humorous, and for me it's kind of like a, a, a sweet memory of um, Dan McDougald telling the story of. Uh, Uh, one of the conflicts that came up around the translation work, what Dan would do is he would send, again, he was an attorney, and he used the rules that the American justice system had established for determining the veracity of information. Does this get into testimony or not? And so the word neighbor was in dispute. When Dan sent the translate, a word or a passage out to be translated, if everybody agreed, then that was accepted. If there was disagreement, he would send it out, he would send it out, he would send it out, until everybody came to agreement. There was a man named... Oh, dear. He was a, 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 a priest... Uh, actually he would have been Schuman. yeah he would have he would have been the equivalent of the pope of the church of the east he lived in chicago he had been exiled from the middle east from his home with all the crazy political stuff that went on there and um he was kind of like dan's tiebreaker that's how dan referred to him he, he very was very affectionately referred to uh to Schuman and um he would say that Marshuman was older than God. <laughs> That's how old Marshuman was. But Aramaic was his native language. So if there was a passage that they couldn't break the, the conflict on, he'd go to Marshuman. And uh, he would tell me stories about going to Chicago to see Marshuman. And Marshuman, being older than God, still drove. and <laughs> He'd tell about the harrowing driving experiences with Marshuman. But the word neighbor in Aramaic they find established through Schumann's confirmation is not a physical word. Like we use the word neighbor as the person who lives next door or three blocks over, or they live in the neighborhood. But that's not the meaning in Aramaic. And Shapley kept coming back with that meaning. And... uh the other translators were coming back with the word being actually a mental word. If you were mentally near, and in Aramaic, the word neighbor, best understood in English, would mean anybody that you think about. So if there was anybody in history, you know, living or dead, somebody you thought about from that you'd heard about from 10 centuries ago, or someone that you didn't know who lived on the other side of the world, if you thought about them... They were your neighbor. So it was mentally near, not physically near. And I can remember, Dan, the, 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 the gestures. You know, what kind of makes this story sweet for me is if, you know, the gesture that Dan made as he mimicked Marshuman and Dan is sharing with him what Shapley had said, Dr. John Shapley, uh, about the word being about someone who's physically your neighbor, someone here, and he Dan mimics Mark Schuman, and he shakes his head. And he's like, "Oh, I know what's got Shapley confused. He's been reading those new new dictionaries they wrote in the sixth century." To that point, it was known that the word neighbor was a mental word. If someone was mentally near to you, if you're going to honor your neighbor, that means anybody you think about, you want to honor and hold a space of love for. Well, why would I want to do that if I've got a neighbor that's nasty to me? Because that's how I maintain my human life. It's not about my neighbor. That mistranslation, the Greeks, love your neighbor as yourself, is totally false. In Aramaic, it speaks of you must have, and we spoke about this the other day, but you must have Rakma, the gateway that brings human life, love, into your form so that you're functioning as love with this person in the world, with this neighbor, this person that you think about. So if you thought about, let's say, you know, quote-unquote, you're at war and the, the enemy is some foreign country. If you want to maintain your human life, you've got to keep rachma present so that love is in your physiology. You don't give up your human life to your own unresolved rage or fear. So in Aramaic, what Yeshua is saying is, first order business, you've got to maintain your human life. When he's asked the question, what's most important in the law? Marshuman Schumann wanted to say they wrote these new dictionaries because the generals wanted to eradicate, you know, the military wanted to eradicate this idea of you've got to be the space of love for your neighbor so they could make war and steal other people's property. Totally outside of the realm of just and fair behavior. Totally and completely against the teachings of Yeshua. But it's really easy with Greek translations to go totally completely against that which preserves your own human life. People do that, for instance, with their own children. They lose their human lives. That is, they lose the experience of the presence of love in their own physiology when their children do things that arouse rage or fear in them. And the first order of business is you've got to forgive as to. If your children do a behavior that arouses rage or fear in you, you need to do the work of removing your rage and fear so that you maintain your human life. This is the first order of business. Remember, Yeshua doesn't say, I come to bring you religious dogma or religious doctrine. He says, I come to bring you life. I'm here to show you how to maintain your human life. In a world where most everybody's lost their human lives to the rage and fear of their generations and of their cultures. And the variations on the theme of hostility and fear. You know, someone who, let's say, sees the drunk in the gutter has disdain for the drunk in the gutter. Disdain has displaced their human lives in their own minds. And they would say, well, but I only have disdain for that drunk in the gutter. No, you don't have disdain for the drunk in the gutter. You have disdain in your mind. You've got to stop pretending it's caused by the drunk in the gutter or the enemy or the other person on the other side of the world or whoever it is you're blaming it on. And recognize that if there is an energy in you that is distorting or destroying your human life, you have work to do. Whatever your family's system story is, whatever your cultural story is that justifies you doing this, you got to give it up. So if there's one person that you can think about, past, present, future, living or dead, including yourself, you are your own neighbor in Aramaic when you think of yourself. If you have hostility towards self, you can lose the experience of yourself as love. You can lose your human life when you think of self and it violates that law. So, resolving the, uh, the definition of the word neighbor was an interesting project with, uh, with Dan and a, a story that he would tell with great animation. So there's an editor's note here to to once again we've talked about it but we'll repeat it just for anybody who doesn't have the manuscript who's listening so we get the whole context in this we're going to have this uh, you know on YouTube for anybody to uh, to access so I want to make sure we cover it completely uh, including for people who don't have the manuscript so so the owning codex had two manuscripts incomplete Yonan, 7th or 8th century Peshitta text, and the Kiburis, the complete 165 A.D. Syriac Aramaic text. Um, some scholars, as I talked about with uh, with Rocco, uh, mistakenly thought, when looking at the Yonan or pictures of it, that they were looking at the Kiburis. Clearly... Shapley's reference to the text being complete and pre-5th century was not the Onan, but the Kabur. So that's what, Shapley was part of the team that was translating that. A gentleman named Philip Hitti, who is a, a professor at Pr- Princeton University, after examining the Codex, said, it is a genuine piece on parchment written by a professional scribe who evidently approached his duty with a religious attitude of mind and did a magnificent job of the Koly Again, you can go to our website and whyagain.org forward slash kabouris and you'll see all 515 pages of the kabouris we've got. They're not the high-resolution images, but there are... Images that you can get a good sense of, and especially the uh, the pages where the vowel markings are in red. That it's just beautiful. So he talks about it is probably a fifth century, and that would make it one of the oldest, if not the oldest, surviving manuscript of the entire Gospels, with the exception of the first and last folios, which have been rewritten. So the first and last page have been damaged. And uh, George Lamsa, uh, who was a who was born in the Middle East in Kurdistan, uh, wrote, a few years ago I had the opportunity, as you know, to examine your MSS, that is the um, Yonan, at considerable length. It has nothing to do with later Monophysite versions, which were made in the 5th and 6th century AD. The Beshitta text precedes not only the other versions, which were made in the Near East, but also the Aramaic liturgies and other literature. The fact is well-known to all competent scholars and students who are familiar with the history and the rise of the expansion of Christianity in the East. The fact that the Peshitta's originality and antiquity are upheld by the Nestorians, Chaldean Roman Catholics, Jacobites, and other Christians in the Near East, proves beyond a doubt that the Peshitta text was made before the birth of Ravula, the Bishop of Edessa. Had Rabbula made new versions of the New Testament in his day, that is to say, in the early part of the 5th century, the Nestorians and the Chaldeans never would have accepted it. This is because Rabbula was excommunicated by the Church of the East. On the other hand, Rabbula was one of the hundreds of bishops of the Church of the East that could not have undertaken the task of translating the Bible without patriarchal sanction. There's nothing in the history of the Church of the East to show that any translation has ever been made. So, on the other hand, there was no record that Rabelah had ever made a translation or even a revision of the New Testament. What Rabula did was this. He altered a few words in order to harmonize some of the doctrines of this church with those of the Byzantine Church. The fact That fact is known to all monophysites. The Peshitta New Testament in Aramaic was in common use for more than sixty in pardon me, more than sixty dioceses in the Middle East, India, and the Far East prior to the excommunication of Bishop Rabula. In Rabula, uh, the word Rabula, his name, is the root in our language today of rabble rouser. He was a troublemaker, and basically, he stirred up a lot of trouble trying to change the meanings of words, destroying Aramaic texts in order to substitute his church's interpretation. And, you know, thinking today, uh, you know, I read yesterday the introduction to one of the modern um, churches that admitted changing scriptural ideas to harmonize with their evangelical beliefs. So Rabelow was basically doing that. And I guess he was um, not very gentle about it. He was a rabble roster. He was a troublemaker. And so... Um he goes on to say, moreover, thus far, all rival Christian sects and Muslims in the Near East and India agree on the originality and authenticity of the Peshitta text and look upon it as the original copy of the New Testament and as the beginning of the Aramaic literature during the first century Christian era. Moreover, there is nothing in the Peshitta text that is alien to Aramaic speech, idioms, customs, and manners. And that, that was a specialty of George Lamsa. He was born into a family that spoke Aramaic as his native language. Sadly, if you look into the uh the history of translations, there was a point where the and, and they've called them Peshitta texts, where they did take Aramaic texts or pardon me, Greek texts and translate them into Aramaic, back into Aramaic. And unfortunately that much of the uh, mindset doing that work had already been infected by Greek ideas. And so Greek misunderstandings were also injected into those translations and that teaching. So there's nothing in Peshitta text, which is alien to Aramaic speech, idioms, customs, and manners, and there's nothing in it to indicate it being a translation from any other source. And then from uh, a text called the Catholic Bibl- pardon me, Biblical Quarterly in uh, 1956, there's a quote the particular readings of Peshitta show that it is a revision of earlier Syriac translations, as witnessed by Puritans MS of the Old Syriac Gospels and the Sinai Pamphlet, both of which represent not only the older Syriac version but also one of the vastly superior of, of vastly superior importance in the history of the New Testament text. Its underlying Greek manuscript belonged to the Byzantine family. Uh, in which Lucian of Samosa had a hand. So it's just some of the history that we've put in here in order that uh,
3: you might have a
4: taste of the the foundation. And and again, my objective in this, what I've worked with in working with the Aramaic over the last 40, I'm not even sure now, 43, 4, 5 years now, is to work toward dissolving the Greek brainwash that I was fed on as a a younger person and being able to think in English in a way that most closely approximated, training my own mind to be able to formulate or construct perceptions that as closely as possible, match the Aramaic. And when you do that, and then you follow the instructions from the Aramaic, what happens is you get to live in a way that you're out of your mind. You're not looking at the past and the mind to understand or interpret anything. You're living in the present as a human being in contact with the actuality of the creation in which you live, move, and have your being. And you have a mind that has information. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good, and it feeds you information. And to me, one of the standards is you recognize that if your mind is feeding you something based in hostility or fear, that hostility or fear means that your mind is using corrupt data at that moment, and it's incorrect. Whatever it's telling you, it's incorrect. And when you find your mind is feeding you something that's incorrect, you enter into the forgiveness process to remove that which is off base. And so, Ms. Jeannie, I'll just check with you once again and see before we move into this next section. Uh, if we've got anybody with a hand up, a thought, a question, anybody need any support with any of the tools?
1: No hands are up.
4: All's quiet. All right. Well, then we're going to head into page 11, where uh, Marshuman uh, writes a uh, an introduction to the text. And it's rather simple. It just says, Gentlemen, I'm grateful for the foundation bringing into English imagery many of the understandings of my faith too long obscured to the West by the nature of my native Aramaic. So again, Mark Schumann lived in Chicago. He had escaped persecution in the Middle East. And he was then go-to person when he needed clarity uh, and clarification of the subtleties Of the language, and so then the text goes into dedications, and we're we're going to go through the whole text so that anyone who listens to this and doesn't have access to the the text itself uh, will have access to everything that we're utilizing as a foundation for where we're moving. So there's some dedications, much of it written by Dan McDougal himself, and Dan. Um by the way he he was a military man as a young man he ended up in the military World War 2 he was in the navy and just to give you a sense of the kind of mind that Dan had aside from being a legal scholar Dan was um was an officer in the navy and as I'm not even sure exactly where in the process this happened, but but the Navy did IQ tests on everybody that was, and I and, and I don't know for sure it was whether it was all of the officers in the Navy or it was all of the enlisted men and officers, but his IQ test showed him to be literally he had the number three score IQ score in the whole of the Navy in World War II. So that's the kind of mind Dan had. He was just, I mean, he was magnificent. So this work is dedicated to the efforts and courage of Dr. Norman Malik Yonan. As a native speaker of the Aramaic language, one of the foremost Aramaic translators of his day and a devout follower and practitioner of Yeshua's teachings, he devoted his life and fortunes to clarifying the understanding in the West of the truths of Yeshua, the Nazirite, Dr. Dr. Yonan's ordeal and efforts were met without support or encouragement. The intellectuals of his time were unable to grasp the intricacies and uniqueness of his Aramaic language. He was living testimony to the adage, truth is not enough to guarantee acceptance. You must be popular with your audience. Born into the Aramaic language of a noble Assyrian family in a small town, Located on the shores of Lake Irma in Abishazan, in Iran, the language of Yeshua was a natural for him. Unlike those of us in the West, he did not have to change his views or understandings of life to understand Yeshua's teachings. We don't have that blessing. We must learn a new way of thinking. We need to be freed from our modern minds and learn to think in the old ways to understand Yeshua. This old way of thinking is not referring to the thinking of a few hundred years ago. It is the understanding of the words of almost 2,000 years ago, pre-Constantinian and Semitic in nature. To be more exact, Dr. Yonan and the work of the Foundation scholars over a 50-year period brings us these rediscoveries. Yonan was not popular because he rattled the cages of conventional wisdom, the very wisdom that had failed to sustain the law, thereby undermining the ethics and the morals of Western culture. It is our fervent hope that this presentation will initiate the favorable acceptance of the practice of his findings, which are long overdue. And then there's a tribute to Dan and his a little bit about his history. So Dan McDougald, Jr., J.D., his lawyer, was the guiding force that conceived, developed, promulgated, and nurtured this pioneering project. Dr. McDougald was single-minded in his love and concern for his country and her people. He saw that this great nation was coming apart at the seams and as a result of the loss of understandings of the wisdom of the ages as practiced by Yeshua. He decided that we only needed to find Yeshua's true teachings. Dan sacrificed his prominent career, his substantial family fortune and reputation, as well as his personal life for more than 50 years to bring this effort to fruition. In the last year and a half of his life, fully aware that he was coming to cancer but refused to burden anyone else with his impending demise. He worked every possible hour of the day and night to get this project to the point where he could pass the torch. This was written by one of the bishops of the Syrian Orthodox Church that uh, Dan passed the manuscript to. His demonstration of dedication to this work will always be an example for us to follow. We watched in awe how... For the last 13 years, he invested his life and energy without hesitation or reserve into this project while continuing to care for his beloved wife, June, who is severely afflicted with Alzheimer's syndrome. Dr. Dan McDougall was declared a martyr of the church. We celebrate the gift you've given the world out of your dedication to bringing forward the accurate teachings of Yeshua from his native Meramaic language. You'll be truly missed by all who had the high privilege and honor to know and work with you death in aramaic meaning present elsewhere and we means present elsewhere and we ask dan for your continued attention and support in helping and ensuring the integrity of this project blessings to you on your eternal journey journey dan so in part that was written by me and in part was written by the uh, Bishop of the Syrian Orthodox Church. And so that completes our time for today. The uh, the uh, blog talk system has whispered in my ear that our time is up, so it's going to cut us off. So I'm just going to say thank you for joining us and uh, and uh, pass on the links to this uh, this presentation. There is a U page. I think this is our 12th day of study. I don't know how many days we'll end up with, but thanks for joining us and have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye.